uh, chapter 6. I'm going to read from verses 10 all the way down to 17. And the passage, sermon passage, will focus on verses 16 and 17 in particular today. But for context, I'm going to read from verses 10 right through to the end of 17. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. (coughs) Let's pray together. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Our Heavenly Father, we pray you would grant to us minds to understand and hearts to receive and feet to follow all that you have for us in this day and that you would enable us as your people to stand firm for Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Glinda Michael's corpse was found in an abandoned warehouse in King's Cross, London, 1943. He was jobless and homeless when his body was found. And yet his dead body helped win the Second World War. He was dressed up to look like a soldier. Intelligence officers, they placed a fake ID in his pocket and they chained a briefcase to his wrist. And the briefcase contained a fake, totally fabricated battle plan for the British Army to invade Greece. The real target was Sicily. And so his body was thrown into the Atlantic Ocean just uh, beside Spain so that when his body washed up on the shore, the Nazis there thought that they'd struck gold. News of this British invasion on Greece made its way all the way up to Hitler and he moved 90 thousand soldiers to Greece, leaving Sicily 
for the taking. The tide of war, someone wrote, turned thanks in part to the body of a tramp set adrift in the Atlantic Ocean. Well, two weeks ago, we arrived at the fullest treatment of spiritual warfare in the Bible. And so far, we've seen that soldiers of Jesus Christ are called upon to do one thing, stand. We're not called to formulate ingenious battle plans according to our wisdom, according to our ingenuity, just like the one that I mentioned. We're called to stand, to stand firm. And the Apostle Paul has been walking us through, he's been telling us how we are to do that by putting on, Paul has told us, the whole armor of God. Last Sunday morning, he, 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 we saw how the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of readiness help us to stand. This week, Lord willing, we'll see how the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation help us to stand too. But before we do that, allow me to say, I know some of you are wondering why we're not looking at an Advent sermon series right now. It's the 10th of December and we're still in Ephesians chapter six. Well, friends, here's the reason. I am so burdened for us as a church to stand for Christ in these evil times. I am so concerned for us to be in practice the more than conquerors that Jesus made us when he saved us. Left to ourselves, we are not strong. Left to ourselves, we are not valiant. We are not wise. We are not able. But when we're dressed in all the armor of God, we are all of those things by the grace of God alone. And we are in reality, we are in practice, those super abundant conquerors that Jesus Christ made us when he saved us. And therefore, here in Ephesians chapter 6, my hope, my goal, my aim is for, the, is for courage to enter every believing heart in this place. And for winds from heaven to blow behind our sails again. For the church of God to be all that we've been called to be in these dark and desperate times. Friends, listen, I am a sucker for a good Advent sermon series as much as any of you are. But I am so burdened for us to be all that God saved us to be and calls us to be. I cannot leave Ephesians chapter 6 alone at this point. Now, not only that, I also want some of you to take your stand for Jesus Christ for the very first time. There are some of you in this room who are very new to all of this. There are others of you in this room who have been raised in this church. You've been here for longer, far longer than I have, but until you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not on the Lord's side, but I want you to be. We want you to be. And so my prayer today is that as you hear of all that soldiers of Christ are, are called to be and are called to do, you'll take your stand for the Lord Jesus Christ for the very first time 
and be found on his all-victorious side. Stand, therefore, again, is the point of our passage. How are we to do that? Well, number one, via the shield of faith, and number two, via the helmet of salvation. Number one, the shield of faith. Look, at, look with me again at verse six. Paul writes there, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It's interesting when Paul wrote these words, Roman soldiers carried those door-shaped shields into battle. They provided that protection all the way from the head to the toe of a soldier. They consisted, someone wrote this, of two layers of wood glued together and covered first with linen and then with leather. They were bound with iron above and below and they were specially designed to counter those arrows that the enemies would dip in pitch, set on fire and then launch into the air, but more significantly, God declares himself to be our shield. In Genesis 15 verse one, we read this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not Abram, I am your shield. And you heard me read Psalm three verse three at the beginning of our time today, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. And Proverbs 30 verse 5 says this, God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And therefore, Paul's exhortation boils down to this, shield yourself by faith in God. Shield yourself by faith in in God. Extinguish all of the flaming darts all of the fiery arrows by trusting in God. Because of the command of the devil, the host of hell's armies draw back and they launch wave after wave after wave of fiery darts on the church of Jesus Christ. Why? For us to doubt unto death. Doubt is the Christian's kryptonite. The devil wants you to believe, uh, wants you uh, to doubt rather that there is a God. Uh, the devil wants you to doubt that God is good. The devil wants you to doubt that God has spoken clearly and sufficiently in his word, the Bible. He wants you to doubt that the work of salvation was completed when Jesus suffered, bled, died, and rose for sinners. He wants you to doubt that you're forgiven. He wants you to doubt that you're saved. He wants you to doubt that God is a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. He wants you to doubt God's love for you, God's care for you. He wants you to doubt that God's law is good and is worth obeying. And if one of those flaming arrows, if one of those flaming darts can stick in your flesh, incalculable damage will be done in your life but sufficient to extinguish every flaming dart is faith in God. So that when your circumstance involves grief, when you lose that friend and the fiery dart of atheism comes whizzing through the air that says, there is no God, there is no one running this show, you idiot. Take God at his word when he says, 
I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, verse five. And when your circumstance involves crushing disappointment because your son has made shipwreck of his life again, despite all of your tears, despite all of your pleadings, despite all of your prayers, and that flaming arrow whizzes through the air that says God's heart is stone cold towards you and his ears are deaf to your cry, take God at his word when he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Exodus 34 verse six. And when you're drowning in guilt because you had that abortion, and the cry of that unborn child haunts you day and night, and the fiery dart of the enemy comes flying through the air that says, God is against you and God is not for you. Take God at his word when he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my name's sake, I will not remember your sins. And when you find yourself at a crossroad, and you can't see which direction to take because of the black fog that is enveloping you. And the flaming dart of the evil one comes flying through the air that says, you can't trust God to lead you. God isn't seeing you. God doesn't know what's going on. Take God at his word when he says, I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Isaiah 41, verse 13. And so listen, friend, if, you're, if you are gonna protect yourself by trusting in God, then you're gonna need to know how trustworthy God is. You're gonna need to know how reliable God is. You're gonna need to know how good God is, how strong he is, how all-sufficient he is to extinguish every flaming dart that comes against you, and if you're going to know that you're gonna need to look at Jesus, because Jesus Christ embodies all of God's trustworthiness, all of God's reliability, all of God's goodness and strength for you. He is the image of the invisible God. And John 1 verse 18 says this, no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. On Christmas Eve, a few years ago, <clears throat> the, uh, the first multi-season Life of Christ TV show was aired. It's called uh, The Chosen. Many of you will have, have heard of it. It's been wildly <laughs> successful. And um, <clears throat> on, on the one hand, I'm glad that unbelievers are, are hearing the words of Christ, perhaps for the very first time. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not that glad because the actual words of Christ account for about 10% of the, of the dialogue. But you know, I think that one of the reasons it has been so successful among Christians is because deep down, Christians believe that their faith would be strengthened if they could just envisage Christ, the way he, he actually 
looked in his flesh. One of my girls asked me recently, Dad, why didn't God draw a picture of Jesus and put it in the Bible for us? But friends, the only portrait of Christ we need is the perfect portrait that God painted with words. The person who asks, can I really trust God amid this torrent of fiery darts that are falling on my head need only open his Bible to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in order to hear a resounding yes. Because in Christ, God reveals himself to be infinitely reliable, infinitely good, infinitely wise, infinitely loving, and therefore infinitely worthy of our trust. And if you want to know how strong your shield is, our friend, look to the immortal Lord Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple and dipped in blood, and rest assured that you have an all-sufficient immortal shield before you and the enemy. But friend, what I also want to say to you today is this, the shield of faith works best when it is placed besides the shields of others. This is what Ian was mentioning earlier. It's, it's very interesting that Roman shields, uh, they had these curved edges to offer a little bit of protection from the side, but nothing quite compared to the tortoise maneuver that you will have all have seen in films or history books or whatever, that when the enemy dips the arrows in pitch and launches them into the air on fire, all of the shields of the Romans would be lined in a row. There'd be shields before them, shields above them, shields behind them, and they would be comprehensively protected. And the point that I'm making here is this. You will be a thousand times more protected as a Christian when you are connected to the other believers in this church. Can I tell you what all of the most solid believers in this church have in common? They are cemented into the life of this church. And can I tell you what every lukewarm believer has in common in this church? They are stuck to the life of this church with sellotape. You show me a person cemented to the core of a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, and I will show you a thriving believer. You show me a believer sellotaped to the life of a church and I will show you a believer with six flaming arrows stuck in his heart. Stand, Paul says. How are we to do that? Via the shield of faith. And via second, the helmet of salvation. Look at verse 17. Paul writes there, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, when the Ephesian church heard this letter being read aloud to them as the early churches would, at this point, they, they inevitably pictured the, the Roman helmets that the soldiers wore in the first century. They were, quote, normally constructed of bronze, fitted over an iron skull cap, lined with leather or cloth, as someone put it. But more significant than that, is the fact that God is said to wear a helmet of salvation in Isaiah chapter 59. In Isaiah 59 verse 17, we read this. 
he, God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And and Isaiah was pointing the, the exiled Jews in Babylon to the impending visit of Yahweh. And he was saying, listen, Yahweh is coming to liberate all of the repentant exiles and to judge all of the unrepentant exiles and their captors. God is coming as an omnipotent warrior to save the uh, contrite in heart and to judge the callous in spirit. Friends, here we are today awaiting the final visit of Yahweh God, where God will do on a global scale what he did back then on a local level in Babylon. So that whereas God wears a helmet of salvation to bring salvation, we are to wear the helmet of salvation as we anticipate his salvation on the last day. The command then to take the helmet of salvation means this. Protect your mind from despair in view of the salvation that is to come. Garrison your mind Fortify your thoughts from all defeatism, from all hopelessness, from all pessimism in view of the salvation that is coming your way. Because friend, the day is fast approaching when Jesus Christ will return to the world that he made and he will say to his blood-bought church, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then the dwelling place of God will be with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. To put on the helmet of salvation means to protect your mind from despair in view of the salvation that is coming. And friends, listen, if that's going to happen in our lives, we are going to have to bring heaven from our peripheral vision to the forefront of our focus. I don't think we're very good at doing this. I know know that I'm not very good at doing this. I, I, I tend to think about heaven when I've had a particularly bad day or if someone has died in the church. Friends, that is not enough. We need the helmet of salvation every day. So the question then is, how can we put it on? How can we protect our minds by keeping the hope of heaven in view? And I want to give us four answers. First answer by refusing to love the world. By the world, I don't mean the planet. Recycle all you want, whatever. I mean the priorities, the principles, the loves of the world's societies. Why? Because they are antithetical to the priorities and to the principles and to the loves of heaven. The more in love with the world you fall, the more out of love with heaven you will fall. 
And the more at home you feel in the world, the less you'll find yourself longing for your home in heaven. And the sweeter the world tastes to you, the more bitter heaven will taste to you. Love not the world. Next, love not the things of the world. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in other words, if your heart is bound to worldly treasures, then your heart will be destroyed when the world is destroyed. But when your heart is bound to your treasure in heaven, you will be preserved and you'll find yourself longing to enjoy the treasure that is soon to be yours in glory. Third answer, and more positively, love now what we will love in heaven then. In other words, if we're going to protect our minds from despair by thinking about our salvation in glory, let us work up an appetite to love the things we're going to love then. We're going to love holiness there. Let's love holiness now. We're going to love purity there. Let us love purity now. We're going to love worship. We're going to love communion with God there. Let us love those things now here on earth. And fourth, love who we will love in heaven. Because the more that you grow in your love for the Lord Jesus Christ, the more you'll hear yourself praying, come Lord Jesus, come. And when our hearts are aglow with, with love for heaven, our minds will be protected from despair. And I don't know about you, but in this world, I need that protection. Uh, John Newton, the, the guy that wrote the immortal hymn that we sang a few minutes ago, Amazing Grace, he, he had this amazing illustration to, to get at this. He, he wrote this. He, he wrote, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. What was his point? Your destination is to inform your journey. Your destination is to inform your journey. So let me speak to the wives in the room for a moment. The next time you hear your husband grumbling about something relatively unimportant, ask him, sweetheart, is this going to matter in a hundred years? And if not, remind him it's just a carriage and it's only a mile to walk. Tell him to protect his mind by thinking seriously of what's to come. Do you know when I, I get all upset about something, Gloria can upset me a little bit more because she's so solid. She's so objective. She will not descend to that level. And that upsets me in the moment, but I need that. And so do you. You can't marry Gloria, though. <laughs>
<laughs> but again, the command to take the helmet of salvation means protect your mind from despair with thoughts of what is to come. And at this point, I really need to say this to those of you here today who are unbelievers. You need to think about what's to come too. Because when our warrior God returns on that great and terrible day, that will mean salvation to the church, but it will mean destruction for you. When God comes on that day, he will sweep every idol, every idolater, and every form of idolatry into hell. And he will damn every man and woman who has trampled underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ. Revelation 14, 11 says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. But in this moment, the gates of paradise are flung wide open before you. And if you will turn from your sin and you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I promise you this with all of God's authority, you will go down to your house today justified, declared righteous in his sight. If you will believe Jesus loved me, Jesus died for me, and pray, Lord Jesus, accept me now, a sinner by your grace and by your grace alone. You will be saved now and you will be saved then. Therefore, let nothing hold you back. Put to one side those unanswered questions. Put to the other side those doubts that you have and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the acceptable time. And tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's day, as someone put it. And until your faith becomes sight and Jesus Christ returns, stand via the shield of faith and via the helmet of salvation and may God help us all to do what he has called us to do and to do what he has saved us to do for the honor of his name amen let's pray Our Heavenly Father, we pray that by your grace and by your enabling, you would help us as a church to put on the whole armor of God. We are weak, thou art mighty. We are foolish, you are wise. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you because you know what to do. And you know how to lead us. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to stand. Help us, Lord, as believers to stand for the 100th time. And help the unbelievers in this room to take their stand 
for the very first time today. They may not know everything. They might, may not have every question answered. But Lord, we pray that they would be absolutely certain that Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him. And we pray that they would do that now by faith and by faith alone in Christ. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.